0: Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and I regret to inform you we had a full day. We had a full show of topics to talk about, but we're going to have to scrap all of it and talk about how Google's new uh, Gmail format (laughs) is bad. It just took me a lot longer than it should have to figure out how to make what once was a chat and is now a space into a small box instead of a big box, because I guess they replaced the old icon that made sense with the new icon for no reason. <laughs> that's, that's grandma's technology corner for you to start the show off. We have other less important news to get to uh, besides yeah. <laughs> Gmail and how we hate it all. Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan.
1: Yes, she
2: did.
0: The old bird went and did it. She landed there uh, about an hour ago. So we are going to talk about the implications of that visit and just how reckless uh, yeah. a venture it was yes um and why in the world she or her party right because there's some disagreement as to the unity on this uh this matter w- why on earth they decided to undertake it you
1: know, i was talking to our friend bruce fine about this yesterday mm-hmm. and he has a very specific uh point of view that really nobody in the media is talking about foreign policy is the constitutional domain of the executive. Mm-hmm. It is forbidden for a member of Congress to carry out foreign policy. Nancy Pelosi has no constitutional right to even take this this tour. Mm-hmm. She should not be there.
0: Yeah, so either there, it's like either there is genuine disunity on this yeah. inside the Democratic Party,
1: which, right, which I think is, we're being fed.
0: Yeah, but if it's not genuine, why? Don't they recognize that this makes them look weak right. and inept? Like, I, I think right. we're being fed it, too. But you think, who—to wh- what end? It doesn't—there's no way it makes you look good. No. It's weird. So, of course, we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about um, Russia pointing to the words of a Ukrainian general to say, uh, look, the U.S. is actually directly involved in the war on Ukraine— If, as this general says, the U.S. and U.K. are providing real-time information Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and being consulted in some fashion before uh, Ukraine undertakes HIMARS strikes, right? And so the Ukrainian general has basically—he sort of walked up and said, oh, yeah, we're doing everything in consultation. But no, they're not telling us—they're not giving us, like, direct targeting go-aheads or whatever— You can, you know, you can choose which side of of his mouth that he's speaking out of to believe there. Right. Russia has obviously said we're putting this information in our back pocket as evidence that the U.S. is not a sort of uh, enthusiastic bystander.
1: This is one of those examples where it's better to keep your big mouth shut Mm. or even better yet is maybe uh, respect international law.
0: Yeah. That would be nice, too. What a concept. Yeah, and on Ukraine also, we are going to go into this in more detail, but I am fascinated by what is happening between the White House and Tom Friedman in the pages of the New York Times. I'm
1: glad we're going to talk about this.
0: Tom Friedman, I mean, we're going to talk about this from a couple different angles, which is surprising because it is Tom Friedman,
1: who mostly
0: is not, you know, not credible, no. but bad at analysis. No, and we're, stupid, we're not <laughs> fans Friedman of like Tom, Tom Friedman. Friedman's. But, you know, on one hand, he writes this column about how Uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is is dangerous uh, and irresponsible. We can agree on that. And and we're going to get into the implications of that in a little bit, uh, in a little bit. Um, But in explaining why it's so reckless, he says, by the way, Uh, The war in Ukraine isn't over. And privately, U.S. officials are a lot more concerned about Ukraine's leadership than they are letting on. There's deep mistrust between the White House and President Volodymyr Zelensky. That's the shocking part. That is. And, you know, he goes on to say, like, the U.S. is basically trying to avoid looking under the hood and, and seeing Ukrainian corruption for what it actually is and seeing this government. But as other people pointed out, this is the second time since May that Tom Friedman Citing a high placed White House official, yes. has has done the work of the of you pr- presumably right. That this White House official knows what he's doing and yeah. leaking this information to Tom Friedman or making these statements. It wasn't an accident uh, to say, yeah, hey guys, you got to remember, there's daylight between us and and Kiev. Yes, even as we give them five hundred fifty million more dollars, which was announced yesterday. So there's a lot to talk about in that. I think
1: I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, as much as I dislike the guy, kudos to Friedman for developing a source inside the White House that's apparently so well placed that he knows exactly what the president's thoughts are on the likes of Nancy Pelosi and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. I mean, unless this is just one of uh, Tom Friedman's cab drivers,
0: who I'm pretty sure do not do not exist a lot of the time, which is also (laughs)
1: possible. Is he just
0: making it up? Is he like, yeah, is he making it up in the pages of The New York Times? Remember,
1: he's not a journalist. He's a columnist. Yeah. And so it's different if he makes it up than if a, a New York Times journalist makes it up.
0: I guess. So there I still think you're it's frowned upon when you say someone at the White House told me, hey, someone at the yeah. White House told me they love your shirt today, John.
1: You know, I think so. so many CIA people that I used to work with would do these short rotations um, uh, at the White House mm-hmm. in air in air quotes. They actually never got inside the White House. They were inside the old executive office building. In one case, the new executive office building, which is a block away, right? And nowhere near the White House. Mm -hmm. But they would always say, oh, I work at the White House. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you don't. Then maybe these are Freeman's boys. Could be,
0: but you know, hey, hey the, I mean, the White Who House knows? Knows it, the, isn't coming out and contesting this anyway. Yeah, uh, we've got more. We're going to talk about this burn pits legislation uh, that is supposed to get a, a vote this week. We're going to talk about a possible resurgence of polio in New York of State. All things, because right? we
1: don't have enough problems uh, yeah. in our country now. Yeah. We have polio to worry about.
0: We're going to talk about the longest sentence yet for a January sixth defendant, and uh, John. Going to let you enjoy this drone strike. Just this
1: one, just this one time. Go ahead. You know how I feel about drones and about Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower. Mm -hmm. I think drones are illegal. Mm -hmm. I really do. They're violations of international law. They're instruments of murder. But if we're going to drone anybody, Mm -hmm. it should be Ayman Zawahedi. Mm -hmm. This is the guy who, along with Osama bin Laden, created al-Qaeda in the 1990s. He had been the, the founder of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was a notorious terrorist group in the 70s and 80s. He was one of the murderers of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat uh, in 1981, I guess it was. Uh, he was released from prison in Egypt uh, as part of an amnesty. It was a terrible mistake because then he immediately went underground and connected finally with bin Laden to create Al Qaeda. It's responsible for the deaths of. 3,000 Americans on 9 11. We have been hunting this guy for 25 years. And, uh, you know, if what we're being fed from the White House is the truth, and mm-hmm. we don't know, it's one of these situations where, you know, the CIA, they lie to us about literally everything, but here they want us to believe that this is all true. So what are you going to do? There's, there's no way to know if you're not inside the CIA if this is true or not. Mm-hmm. But what they're telling us is they found him. Um. In late April, uh, in in an area of Kabul, I don't know how many of our listeners have been to Kabul, but uh, but to the west of the American embassy, uh, it used to be a very poor, even by Afghan standards, very run down, um, you know, area with houses made out of concrete block or or mud. And then when the heroin money started coming in, or the American aid money that was stolen. Uh, Afghans began building these enormous mansions, like Beverly Hills style, gigantic mansions. Mm -hmm. It turns out he was in one of these mansions Mm -hmm. and um, he was very careful. He would only go out onto the balcony at night so as not to be seen. Mm -hmm. So it was was a safe house for him and for his family. CIA found him there in April. They watched him through may june and july to discern a pattern and all this time and again take this for what it's worth this is what we're being told by mm-hmm. the office of the director of national intelligence um they they tried to discern this pattern of life and the president had insisted that they come up with a plan to kill him without killing anybody else in the house that's for very, once for once i mean because cool. you know it, it's it has to still sting uh joe biden that Virtually the first thing he did when he became president was to wipe out an entire Afghan family as the father's loading water into his car. Yeah. Right.
0: I mean, Joe Biden can take some comfort in knowing he's far from the first United States president to have that responsibility and that blood on his hands and far from the last. But yeah, yeah, would that they had taken this care in in every drone strike. Right.
1: Seriously. So, you know, they they to make a long story short, they got him. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the greater scheme of things, does it really matter? Probably not. Yeah. Um, essentially, Al Qaeda has ceased to exist, for all intents and purposes.
0: Except maybe in Syria. Uh, well, but the yeah,
1: right. Which we finance. <laughs> yeah, which exactly. we finance. I
0: mean, Al Qaeda as our enemy as has our ceased enemy, to exist. Right. Al Qaeda as right. our uh, you know tactical partner. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: They uh, they exist uh, to some extent in Yemen. They exist to some extent in uh, in the Sahel. But they're not the Al Qaeda of two thousand and one, mm-hmm. so this is more to me. This is more symbolic than anything else. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit with uh, Aaron Good, who's yeah. going to be I our mean, first. Yeah, congratulations.
0: Guest today. I guess it's now it's more symbolic now, and that's why we couldn't just like text a member of the Saudi royal family and find out where this goes. Well, was.
1: you know what I said last night. Uh, I was on Al Jazeera last night, and I said uh, maybe now we can start investigating the role of the Saudi government in the nine eleven attacks.
0: I mean, didn't I? Didn't Donald Trump promise to declassify everything about the 9-11 attacks and then immediately forgot it? And then he 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 grabbed
1: the glowing orb with the Saudis, and we never never got any explanation. The orb is
0: irresistible. Um, We (laughs) should mention new states of emergency uh, with regard to monkeypox in California and Illinois. And if you are interested, the New York Times has a long story about how less than a decade ago, the U.S. had 20 million doses— of a new smallpox vaccine that was also effective against monkeypox. This is the vaccine that we are trying to get our hands on now in the midst of an outbreak. uh, But let them expire until at the beginning of uh, May. It had 2,400 usable doses left, enough to vaccinate 1,200 people in the whole country. And so it is a long story of... Officials, you know, we have been funding the development of this vaccine, uh, this story points out, to the tune of eventually about $2 billion, funding the development of the company that built it, funding its clinical trials. All of this was done um, in an effort to be prepared against a terrorist attack using smallpox. And so I think the the story really is that because we were so focused on the— possibility of a malevolent use of of bioterrorism, right, we forgot to be prepared for the much more likely scenario of just a, you know, an outbreak occurring in the course of, you know, human existence on planet Earth, Mm -hmm. which has regular outbreaks. And so, you know, they invested a bunch of money in a freeze dried version of this vaccine but it wasn't approved yet. So these ones, and so there's also still a bunch of like raw unfinished vaccine in plastic bags outside Copenhagen that we have, you know, helped develop and pay for, but never actually put on our shelves. And to me, there's something sort of, there's, there's something illustrative here about uh, the the real dangers in this world and the ones that we focus on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Very unlikely that a stranger is going to leap from the bushes and and rape and murder you, right? Right. The the real danger is in your house. The real danger is people you know. The real danger is people who say they love you, right? Uh, We're always focused on, uh, you know, an external enemy, right? You know, Ch- China, mm-hmm. China's is going to nuke Washington, you right. know, which we were we were just talking about. Right. What, would actually, what would actually happen after that? If there <laughs> is the uh, tactical, you know, a strategic military action China's promising is just like a little tiny nuke right on the White House. Right? What's yeah. NATO going to do? Anything? Or does everyone just go, well, had to happen at some point and dust their hands <laughs> off and go. But, you know, we're focusing on um someone doing an incredibly dirty deed to us yes and in the in the meantime we are not focusing on how many millions of people uh lose their lives to diabetes unnecessarily because insulin is so expensive or die prematurely you know it's these these are the real dangers right the real dangers are are in here inside the house Mm -hmm. when it comes to like the, the lived reality of many american people and not you know the possibility that a madman somewhere unleashes it. It's not like bioterrorism isn't, isn't a possibility, but there are other things that are more likely. And I feel like I there's exactly something, right. there's something in this that yeah. should speak to our, the way we approach the world in the United States that we could learn from.
1: Yes. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Couldn't also, agree
0: more. Uh, we were just talking before the show about how we both missed that yesterday, one of the groups that uh, the FBI raided or was implicated in this um, indictment of uh, Alexander Ivanov. Was the Black Hammer Party, who I <laughs> right. have only been following in the most superficial way, but uh, basically not cases. They started to tr- they tried to start this compound in Colorado, right, and then never did anything with it, and uh, sort of went from being like a, a liberationist sort of separatist group to uh, dallying with Proud Boys and uh, right wing groups, and mm-hmm. just just n- incoherent, just sort of uh, yeah.
1: you know bunch of nuts, yeah. Um, but but are they are they threats to society? And you know, <laughs> no, they seem to be th- just threats to people in the group right. mostly, right? Like right. that's
0: what I think. Yes, some member called the police and said that they were being held against their will, and that sort of brought the police to uh, the you know to the party's yes headquarters in the first place. Yeah, so just just a weirder and weirder story. It now. really is. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. Excellent. Yeah.
1: You know, and I, I, real quickly, I know our guest is waiting. Th- this situation where, where polio was found in the New York City sewer system frightens me very much.
0: Yeah. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to talk
1: to Dan Lazar about yeah, that we're a little talk bit to later. Dan From Lazar New York, in the where... second hour. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So we, uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We've got Aaron Good coming up and you're going to like that conversation a lot. We'll be right back. Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. A U.S. drone, likely operated by the CIA, although we don't know because the CIA has never confirmed or denied that it has a drone program, killed an Al-Qaeda leader, the Al-Qaeda leader, and co-founder, that's Ayman Zawahidi, happened over the weekend as he stood on the balcony of his safe house in central Kabul. The CIA reportedly had located Zawahidi at the House back in April and began surveilling him. President Biden met with senior intelligence officials regularly throughout April, May, June and July as the CIA planned the attack, with Biden insisting, apparently, that there be no civilian casualties. The White House says that when the CIA could finally make that promise— The order was given to launch the operation, and Zawahidi was killed after dark when he went out onto the balcony. Taliban officials protested that the strike was a violation of the Doha agreements, but the White House says that harboring a terrorist was a violation of the Doha agreements. Either way, there is no chance that relations between the U.S. and Afghan governments will improve in the near term. In other news, New York Times columnist Tom Friedman wrote in a column yesterday that, among other things, the White House is unhappy with the leadership of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Friedman also opined on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. And finally, the first January sixth defendant to go to trial and to be convicted was sentenced yesterday to seven years and three months in prison. That's great, but what about the leaders and the instigators of the riots? What have they? Uh, done so far. They've skated. They've skated. We're joined by Aaron Good. He's a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast. You can find that on Patreon. He's also the author of American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. Welcome back, Aaron.
3: Hi, John. Uh, great to be here. Oh, it's so, it's
1: always great to have you. Hey, let's start with uh, the drone strike on Al Qaeda co-founder Ayman Zawahidi. Zawahidi was notorious, of course, as one of the masterminds of the September 11th attacks. Um, those attacks killed 3,000 Americans, as we all know. He had earlier been imprisoned in Egypt, as I said, uh, in the uh, at the start of the show, for the assassination of President Anwar Sadat. He was released in an amnesty after being in prison for a few years. Then he went on to found the terrorist group Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which he then later merged with Al-Qaeda. This was a very bad man. Um, So what does his killing mean for the United States? What does it mean for Al Qaeda? And equally importantly, what does it mean for the drone program and for the CIA's use of drones? The reason I ask that is because in the last year or so, Americans, for the very first time, began having some second thoughts about drones, that maybe this was something we shouldn't be doing. Does that change now?
3: Well, I can't see that this would be something that's going to impact the the perception that people have about drones because drones, in a way, are uh, very emblematic of a number of things about the U.S. empire, Uh, and they sort of take it to a lot to its logical extreme in that they kill people uh, in in a totally impersonal way. And Americans in general are not aware of what is done uh, beyond, you know, our shores and what American foreign policy is really about and just how, you know, murderous it is. But uh, with the drones, it's like even the people that are doing the killing are kind of in a bizarre uh, state of detachment from the the killing. So uh, if, the, if Americans haven't been moved to re- uh, think about drones up to now, I don't know that this this isn't going to move them in any sort of positive direction in that regard. Now, Zawahiri himself is a character that is very uh, interesting and uh, dubious in terms of uh, the media narrative that we've been presented with. So he's high-ranking in, uh, in Al-Qaeda, but the uh, there's a, there was a really explosive story that was written by Nafiz Ahmed, who has a PhD, I think, in like uh, the the British version of international relations. And he now writes for Vice magazine. So he's a reputable and meticulous journalist. And he wrote this article in uh, 2013 in Ceasefire magazine. And the article was really on a Sunday Times article that had been written in 2008, or a series that was in the process of being written, that was spiked from on high. And this Sunday Times article— was about a former FBI translator who revealed that the CIA and the Pentagon had been running a series of covert operations supporting Islamist militant networks linked to Osama bin Laden right up to 9-11 in Central Asia, the Balkans, and the Caucasus. While it's widely recognized that the CIA sponsored bin Laden's networks in Afghanistan during the Cold War, U.S. government officials denied that any such ties existed. Others claim these ties were real, but uh, were severed after the Soviet Union collapsed in 89. But according to this FBI translator, the whole narrative is false. She said, not just bin Laden, but several senior bin Ladens were transported by U.S. intelligence back and forth to the region. She says bin Ladens, meaning like bin Laden type characters, uh, were transported by U.S. intelligence back and forth to the region in the late 1990s through to 2001, including Ayman al-Zawahiri. Osama bin Laden's right-hand man, who has taken over as al-Qaeda's top leader. So in the late 90s, these guys, like al-Zawahiri and other Mujahideen al-Qaeda types, were meeting regularly with senior U.S. officials in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, to plan the Pentagon's Balkan operations with the Mujahideen. Uh, Support for these operations from Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, but the U.S. oversaw and directed them. They were being run from a secret office of the Pentagon— Uh, secret section with its own office. So this whole operation was called Gladio B, according to this FBI translator, who, by the way, testified to the 9-11 Commission and was gagged for years with the state secrets privilege uh, of of the, the, the U.S. government. We don't have a state secrets act, but she was essentially gagged. She was described as the most gagged person in U.S. history. Um, by different different magazines and media commentators. There's an article on her in Vanity Fair from like 2003 that was really illuminating. Among other things that she said was that Dennis Hastert was this terribly corrupt person. He was the Speaker of the House at the time and that he had taken heroin cash from... $200,000 in, like, heroin proceeds, basically, for campaign contributions. And they put that in Vanity Fair. They never got sued for libel, so it must have been solid. And later, of course, we know what happened to Hastert. He was found to be a totally corrupt pedophile and so on. Right. So this information checks out. And, you know, this really should—as we look at how the U.S. quest— after the fall of the cold war to take over central asia and even get expand nato as far as possible take over the middle east and, and dominate it you know through through proxy states and client states we'd set up like in iraq and they tried to do it with syria uh, and so on they wanted to go after iran for a while the us has really failed in its effort to more or less take over and dominate the whole, you know, swath of Eurasia and the Middle East after the fall of the Soviet Union, and now we we really, if, if we're going to look honestly at our own history and what's the significance of the death of someone like al we have to look at. Uh, all the events of the after the fall of the Soviet Union in Central Asia, in the Middle East, you know, in the, the rise of terrorism and the 9 11 wars and then the Arab Spring wars and now this war in Ukraine, as one big series of, of disparate campaigns, disparate but united in their overall strategy, which is for the U.S. to dominate this part of the world and, and assert U.S. hegemony in perpetuity by controlling. Uh, the, the heartland of the world's biggest landmass, which is Eurasia, as well as the energy heartlands of the Middle East. And this al-Qaeda business dovetails perfectly with that. It's hard to look at much of what al-Qaeda's done that couldn't be arguably seen as benefiting the objectives of U.S. imperialism. And so really, who was Zawahiri, and uh, what was he doing? Of course, now he's dead, so we'll never, really, we'll never really hear it from him. Are we talking about
1: Sibel Edmonds by any chance?
3: Yes. Yeah, was the and she had in this ceasefire article that Ahmed wrote, they and the Sunday Times article, they got corroboration from her from other people in the FBI. So it's not just this one unsubstantiated person. It was like this. She's got other people supporting her and she was gagged. Her testimony to the 9-11 Commission is still classified. Yes, it is. It should be a huge story.
1: It is still classified. She spoke for several hours, to the best of my recollection. She hadn't been at the FBI very long, but she she claimed to have come across this information. And then she offered it up to the 9-11 Commission uh, and nobody ever commented on what it was that she was testifying. And they've 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 renewed the gag two or three times, the best of my recollection.
3: Right. Which yeah. is, uh, it is, it should be a huge story in and of itself. What could they possibly be hiding? And it's out there in other forms. She's basically talked about it. I mean, the, the Ahmed story, the Nafiz Ahmed story in 2013 about how the people at the Sunday times, the, the big British outlet, yeah. how they canceled the story, that, that alone should have been a huge story and picked up by other media commentators, yeah. but it's one of those things. It's, it's so explosive that it's just out there And it kind of falsifies or calls into question so many dominant narratives. But because it deals with crimes that are too uh, immense to to, really—to be be acknowledged by the system in any way, it's just out there. And so we're in this state where we know—there's all these things that we know if we put them together— That should really uh, be shake, you know, bring down governments and so on. You would think it's just what can we do? We can't. Nobody is going to admit that it happened. So it's like they're just all in. We're all in this state of enforced denial. Yeah.
1: Reaction to the Zawadi killing by elected officials on both the right and the left has been universally positive, except for a tweet today by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said, quote, Biden just wanted to look like a tough guy on TV unquote. She's the only one. Ilhan Omar celebrated it. Mitch McConnell celebrated everybody from the left to the right. Um, So again, what do you think this means for the broader drone program? And I'll repeat myself too, because I feel kind of strongly about this. I'm glad Zawahiri is dead. The world is a better place without him in it. But I hate the idea that this is going to further justify a drone program. I, I gave an interview last night on Al Jazeera and the, the journalist who was interviewing me kept coming back to this idea that it wasn't, it wasn't sporting to use a drone. He said, if, if you knew where he was and you're watching him all these months, why don't you send in a team? Men would send in a team, not a, not a machine. And I said, you're not understanding. I said, the U.S. doesn't care if it's not sporting. The U.S. doesn't care if they destroy the building. And frankly, they don't even really care if they accidentally kill his wife and his children and his grandchildren either. They just want to get him. And if they can send in a drone and not put any Americans at risk, then they're going to send in the drone. But, you know, this journalist had a point. This is what people are worried about. There's no threat to the United States or to to American lives when we send in a drone. It's all so neat and tidy. I mean, it's really not, but this is the way we want people to believe. And so the fear that I have, Aaron, and I'd love your comments, is, is something like this going to make more Americans think, you know, hey, this drone program, this is pretty great. We need to do more of this.
3: Right. I would, I would definitely hope not. And uh, I, I think that it raises other questions that are kind of—I mean, if, if you accept the tenets of U.S. foreign policy that there are—that Al-Qaeda is this thing that emerged of bad people who want to harm the U.S. because they hate our freedoms or whatever, right? then it's hard to really argue so much against the drone program because these people are such cold-blooded killers if you can—you know, according to that rendering, which they are. I mean, these, this is a murderous organization, but— uh, you know, this the, the, it has a deeper origin and it has a, connections to the Saudis, who basically are a proxy of the United States. And, uh, you know, it has to be noted that they are—that al-Qaeda intervenes in in different ways. And even when it attacks the U.S., it ends up furthering the agenda of the U.S. imperialists who have already shown themselves to be murderous, duplicitous masters of mm-hmm. clandestine mm-hmm. warfare and so on. And so it, 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 I think to get any kind of pushback against this sort of killing machine or, or, or these techniques, you'd have to have a, a wider understanding of what the U.S. empire really is and what its methods are and what, what for example, al-Qaeda is. This It's a similar case to al Alaki. Who was also right. sprung, sprung from prison. This, this we found out later. Another huge scandal. We found out that George Tenet had personally intervened to get this guy sprung from prison. Uh, and even though he was a major suspect in the USS Cole bombing, and then Al was a guy who also helped some of those hijackers who had strange. CIA protection, uh, like, uh, that were in, like, um, the guys that were in the San Diego, uh, area, their names escape at the moment, but they were, they were basically connected to Alaki. So he seemed very like a guy who really would have known some explosive things. Why did he get sprung from jail and why did he go on to help the hijackers? And then he gets droned, and then they drone his whole family, his his whole family, family, like his his son.
4: And why? I mean, I'm guessing
3: it's because he knew some explosive things, and and they would rather—why kill these guys rather than bring them in? Even if if you believe the official bin Laden story that he was killed this way, you have to ask, why did they choose to kill these guys? Because they have people—the U.S. loses soldiers all the time. I suspect that a lot of those deaths in Fort Bragg are like people who die— on international uh, right. advent, you know, misadventures and then they get blamed Special as operations exercises. Stuff. So they don't even have to make it known how these guys would have died yeah. if they'd actually try to capture or kill him if they couldn't capture him. I don't think they want to capture him. I don't think they want these people talking. Totally agree. Sarniev, who's been gagged, He's not allowed to talk to anyone, even though they don't even say he's part of a terrorist organization. Right. right. So much of this business with terrorism is uh, is a black box that's kept that way on purpose. And you have to assume or I I do personally as someone who's looked extensively into this, uh, that the uh, veil of secrecy is there to uh, keep very embarrassing criminal things secret.
1: I I absolutely agree with you. You know, I I had a. I had occasion to meet uh Alaki. Uh crazy as it might sound, uh, when I was studying Arabic, uh, my Arabic instructor took uh there were three of us students that took us to the mosque in uh, Falls Church, Virginia, where Alaki was the Imam. And he gave us a tour of the mosque and chatted with us in our rudimentary Arabic, and then we all went to lunch together, and then we went to the um to the Arabic bookstore in uh in Annandale, Virginia. Um and then, all of a sudden, Alaki, I, I go overseas for a couple of years. I come back. Alaki now all of a sudden is this mastermind, this terrorist mastermind. So the CIA security wants to interview me, and and FBI wants to interview me, and I'm like, uh, we we had lunch, and you know he taught us the the word for fava beans, and uh, I mean literally that was the entire extent of my conversation with him. These are fava beans. This is bread. These this is corn. This is the Quran, This is what the Quran says. I mean that was it. I I, I barely knew the alphabet when I met the guy. So in 2009, I go to Yemen. On a trip for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I'm sitting with the uh, the legate, the legal attaché, the senior FBI agent in the in the embassy, and we start talking about Alaki. And I said, "Yeah, he's he's supposed to be somewhere here in Yemen." And the guy says to me, "Oh, come on," he said. Excuse my crudeness, but he says Alaki can't fart without us knowing about it. He said, we know exactly where he is within three feet of his current location. And that was news to me. I wasn't cleared. Right. So I, I wouldn't have access to any information like that. And, um, yeah, they just let him go about his business until they decided, OK, now's the time we're going to kill him. And then a week later, we're going to kill his family, too. And uh, we're going to ignore the fact that he's an American citizen who's never been charged with a crime and who's never had the opportunity guaranteed to him in the Constitution to face his accusers in a court of law. We're just going to wipe out his family. And then if we absolutely have to, we'll apologize for it later. And that's exactly what they did. You know, they, there, was, there was no hunt for al that lasted a decade. They knew exactly where he was. And they let him go about his business as this spokesman, this English-language spokesman for al-Qaeda, which is what he was accused of being. But we don't really know what he did because he was never charged with a crime.
3: Well, and why it would have been quite interesting to know who instructed him to help those hijackers. A lot of questions he he could have answered. um, And but he he didn't. And, you know, you have to it begs a lot of questions as to why it's like a mafia organization. It is. It's like a mafia organization.
1: You're absolutely right. And they don't answer to anybody, which is really the the puzzling part of all this. You know, I, I yell all the time in, in my in my columns about the fact that the oversight committees don't oversee anything; they're they're cheerleaders rather than overseers. And this is a prime example. Let me let me uh, go. Actually, we're kind of running out of time, so I have to I have to hurry up. Sorry. So Tom Friedman, <laughs> I mentioned in the in the intro. Tom Friedman apparently has. A source at the White House, apparently the source has been passing information on internal disagreements over things like the Pelosi Taiwan trip and now this unhappiness over Zelensky. Do you think that this is on purpose? Is the information being leaked to Friedman so that he'll publish it and then the White House can get then gauge what public opinion is?
3: I think that there's a lot going on with these leaks and they're always super political. I've been, I'm in the midst of, and already have spent a lot of time studying Watergate and, uh, the, the leak leaks are warfare, a a kind of warfare in different ways with different targets. So there could be a number of motivations for leaking these things. I think part of it could potentially be to give the administration a little bit of maneuverability as it goes, just so people actually have the sense that there is a disagreement. And so, So perhaps if things go one way or the other, the administration can pivot this way or that way, and it doesn't seem to totally come out of the blue. Uh, Another, I mean, in the past that, you know, Nixon used his madman theory as a way to, like, get people to think that he was so crazy that you had to do what they said. I don't know if Joe Biden has a strange version of that uh, under Biden where it's kind of like the senile man theory or something. So (laughs) people, maybe if the U.S. bungles something, they attribute it to that instead of just, like, the empire being totally... Uh, you know, rudderless at this point or with a corset, you know, off of a cliff. It's hard to say, but I, I think that, you know, Friedman is Friedman is the most establishment guy at oh my the most gosh, establishment has- media outlet. And so if he's reporting something, it is uh, with uh, the uh with the full confidence of the you know the, the the regime itself to uh that there's a reason that they want it out there so I, I think he's not any kind of journalist who's speaking truth to power in any way he's essentially a functionary of our system of governance and we should think of it that way and wonder why he's you know and, and, and interrogate his various leaks and scoops with that in mind so um yeah i, I think that that's probably that there's it's something go- there's something going on there that they want us to know and we can spec you we can guess as to why that is but it's I think it's uh, something along the lines of for political purposes they want us to understand that there there potentially different uh, paths yeah. that they may take as things develop and uh, we'll just have to see how how they respond so at least that you're hearing something about disagreements means that there could be, Uh, A way of working out this uh, business in both either Taiwan or Ukraine, we are hoping, without a nuclear war. I mean, that's the main case in both places where the U.S. should not be in these places right up on the borders of these two powerful countries uh, trying to provoke them. But that's obviously what they're doing. They obviously are trying to to damage Russian and Chinese national security in the most provocative ways possible to keep the U.S. empire going a little bit longer. And uh, I don't think it's going to work. And I think it risks blowing up the world and it's horribly irresponsible. And um, it's I I hope that these things deescalate soon and that the U.S. starts to change its posture in the world and act like a normal country that follows international law.
1: I apologize that we're running so short on time. So I want to ask you real quickly about this uh, January 6th sentencing. Uh, Guy Wesley Reffitt is his name. He was given seven years and three months in prison. He brought a loaded gun to the riot. And he threatened. I actually got a kind of a chuckle out of this. He threatened to drag Nancy Pelosi out of the Capitol by her ankles and make sure that she hit her head on every step on the way out. <laughs> but he never it's actually. So specific. Yeah, so specific. Yeah. He never actually went into the Capitol. The fact that he had a, a gun is what did him in. The Justice Department had asked for a sentence of 15 years. And the final sentence is at the very low end of the federal sentencing guidelines. He was convicted of five felonies. On the way out of the courthouse, his daughters asked a reporter rhetorically why the organizers of the riot hadn't been punished. And I think that's a legitimate question. Do you think that we'll see prosecutions of former White House officials, uh, prosecutions of some of the leaders of these these groups that actually led people inside the uh, the Capitol? Uh, do you think there will be prosecutions coming out of the January sixth hearings?
3: This is a good question. I, I don't re- i I've, I must confess to have not been following the minutiae of these hearings because in in part because I had a feeling that there there would be important things that would always be covered up sure. uh, about it. It does not good point. S- I, I to me what baffles me is that the uh, dim, that, that that it was allowed to unfold that it that, the way that it did. I don't think that it could have possibly. There's it was the most unsubtle, un, uh, un indiscreet planning mm-hmm. of an mm-hmm. uprising you could ever have. It, it could not have possibly <laughs> succeeded as a coup. I don't know. I don't. Know, Trump may have been given some advice by people who were actually not on his side to act in certain ways and issue certain statements. Uh, I don't understand. How they could have let this happen without it, without people who weren't on Trump's side in some way uh, manipulating events to allow things to unfold to create this sort of a spectacle. And so I can't feel sorry for this person who was an idiot and kind of dangerous with what he did. But I do agree that they're not going to go after the people higher up, and that there are there are other agencies and entities in the government, specific most likely continuity of government-related uh, parts of the government that are there to protect us, again, the event of emergencies and uh, nuclear attack or terrorist attack, that must have been involved in somehow standing by to a certain point to allow this to happen, because there's simply no way it should have happened the way that it did. And this guy is, in a sense, a victim because— it's it, it, the, the, the circumstances shouldn't have been there for him to do that in the first place this was these people were on social media posting about all of these plans to go there and uh, it, it was the most obvious thing. And the real question of why it was allowed to happen the way that it was is is probably never going to get answered, or it'll get answered about the same time that they, you know, tell us about uh, who shot Jack Kennedy. Or something <laughs> I know like you're going we'll to say that.
1: Know. That's right, Aaron. Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Aaron's a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's also author of the excellent book, and I mean it too, excellent book, American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. Thanks for joining us. Sorry, I used up all of our time. It's easy
0: to talk to Aaron for a long time. <laughs> it's easy and fun, but we should talk about Nancy Pelosi uh, landing in China yeah. and uh, you in, know yeah. what the. I'm oh, sorry, in Taiwan. Taiwan. Well. Well, in China, it is China. as Beijing yeah. would say, and yeah. also in China, as, as uh, some members of the Taiwanese government would say, if not everyone yes. on that island, yes, uh, so certainly, Beijing's position is that Na- uh, Nancy Pelosi has gone to China without China's permission. You, uh, you've is- spent
1: a lot of time there. I, I'd be interested in your uh, your thoughts on on what the people of Taiwan are saying about this visit. Are they welcoming Nancy Pelosi? Do they see this as a threat? that Nancy Pelosi is is putting them under
0: I mean it's up in the air I'm going to ask our our next guest here I mean do you surely saw some some of both right, uh, right a- sure. absolutely some of both depending on who you what circles you run in mm-hmm. and what media you consume you mm-hmm. know I mean similar to the United States
1: Yeah it's complicated um,
0: but there have been some recent uh reports that uh possibly very possibly this is sort of Chinese language media uh that uh, Taiwan itself had decided that this trip seemed a little bit too uh too provocative, oh, and attempted to rescind Nancy Pelosi's invitation, uh, only to sort of knuckle under after pressure that Pelosi wanted to do something historic. This is one report, right? I do not know if this is true or not, but it is out there. Wow. Uh, we're going to talk about the implications of this very dangerous maneuver with K.J. No, who's joining us now. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. K.J., thanks for being here.
4: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
0: I mean, I feel like the the context of this, even the, the sort of small context of the last week, right, ahead of Nancy Pelosi's landing and in the hours leading up to it, you had the U.S. send warships to Taiwan's east, supposedly on routine deployments. You had China scramble jets in the Taiwan Strait the day before this trip. You had the U.N. secretary general saying that humanity is one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. And yet at this moment, uh, elements of the U.S. government have chosen to increase the possibility of such a misunderstanding. And so, you know, th- there are a lot of different factors of this trip to get into. But just in pure sort of real physical terms, how dangerous is this? Is this jaunt that Nancy Pelosi's undertaken?
4: I think it's very dangerous. I, I really don't think we should underestimate how critical this is. The uh, China has already um, announced that it will be doing five um, military exercises around five points around the island, and some of these come very, very close to China's uh, to Taiwan Island's shoreline. Essentially, uh, they're rehearsing a blockade of the. Um, You know, of the island. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see mass, um, you know, uh, we see, uh, you know, mass preparation with fighter jets. We see mass deployment of tanks on the beach. Uh, The airports, all the Chinese airports in Xiamen and two other regions have been shut down. There are no flights. Uh, There's some serious preparation for kinetic engagement, as far as I can tell, right?
0: Which is terrifying. And you have to think—I mean, what—well, one, you know, uh, uh, forgive me, KJ, but these these sort of reports uh, about— Taiwan perhaps itself trying to get out of this visit. Uh, I've just seen them in the last, you know, 45 minutes, so I don't know if you've encountered any of them. But you have to think that, you know, this is actually not that exciting for quite a lot of people on Taiwan. And also that you know, what on earth is Nancy Pelosi going to do or say there that could possibly be worth any of this? I mean, I understand that merely going is the point. It's not as though we expect her to make some kind of major uh, policy announcement Or anything else, Uh, I saw a clip going around of a man who was presented as a former representative for Taiwan to New Zealand uh, on a Taiwanese news program, saying, "Why are you coming? All all you guys ever do is ask more Taiwanese to join the military." And so, again, you just think, "To to what end has this incredibly provocative move uh, been undertaken? What is what's she going to do?"
4: I think that is the question that everybody is asking around the world, and even in conservative circles in Washington, they they are asking what possible good could come out of this visit. And nobody has been able to answer that question. Pelosi has released a a statement, you know, in the Washington Post, uh, essentially, you know, the same old boilerplate, blah, 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 about authoritarianism versus democracy, which is, you know, that's getting very old. Uh, You know, certainly Taiwan, you know, it's no model of democracy in any real sense. You know, it was essentially uh, the DPP was uh, color revolution, uh, you know, agended. Uh, you know, U.S. The subaltern uh, party like the LDP in Japan. So, it, you know, let's, let's drop the pretense of, you know, quote-unquote uh, democratic, uh, you know, sovereign state, and let's understand it as what it really is. It's, you know, it's, it's a pawn in U.S. strategy, as the DPP uh, would like it to be. Um, that's certainly not the consensus of the majority of the Taiwan people. On Taiwan Island, they want to re- retain the status quo. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, you know, what what is this all about? Well, I think if we pan out a little bit, we can see that Indonesia is doing massive war exercise, uh, war exercises with the United States. These exercises, Garuda, uh, South Korea is currently or will be very shortly conducting joint missile exercises. In uh, the Pacific, in uh, Hawaii, there is the RIMPAC uh, exercises going on. And Japan has just recently visited Taiwan, and they're pledging to, uh, you know, coordinate with uh, Taiwan on its defense. And CNAS, the neocons that are pushing for war with China, have just uh, recently written an article in Newsweek saying that uh, to defend Taiwan, the world needs a more muscular Japan, i.e. a militarized Japan, Mm -hmm. a horrific idea for anybody in the Pacific. So, yes, this is very, very dangerous. It's a critical moment. And certainly uh, Pelosi does not, or anybody in this administration, seems to be thinking with a clear head.
0: I mean, unless, it, you know, the, the larger picture that you point out would imply that in this instance, we are using Taiwan as a pawn to goad China into doing something that would justify a military attack on China. But You have to think, well, why would the U.S. want to do that? Not, in, not invoking a sort of moral or ethical question here, but like, why, why would we think that this would be a, a military action that would benefit us? Even you know what I mean. Every everything does point to that. Absolutely, indeed. What we're we're trying to we're trying to provoke a military confrontation with China because we don't want to compete with them economically. But why would we want to compete with them militarily either? Especially when we are supposedly, and I think to some degree, actually uh, depleting our certainly depleting our budget, but also depleting our sort of military stockpiles supporting Ukraine.
4: Yes. Um, you know, once again, that is some, uh, some, you know, very, very important question. Um, you know, I think the key thing to point out is that, uh, you know, China is saying that this is a comprehensive setback of U.S.-China relations, uh, and they will use this to speed up the reunification process. Uh, and that China will declare the end of U.S. domination of the world order. These are quotes from the Global Times. Is this what the United States wants? Mm. Is this what it wants through military engagement? Um, this is hard to say, but clearly, you know, there, there are hawks, once again, from CNAS and, you know, from Elbridge Colby, who believe that the U.S. needs to uh, engage with China right now, and that it is in their interest to provoke war with China over Taiwan. And they believe, I think falsely, uh, you know, that uh, China is cowed by uh, the uh, Western success in Ukraine. Certainly, somebody's drinking uh, some Kool-Aid over there. Uh, And they also believe that, you know, the Chinese do not have a stomach for war, that they are bluffing, that, you know, that they are a paper tiger. That's clearly not the case. And China has engaged in war under much, much more difficult circumstances. I'm talking about 1950 during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And they sent the same warnings. Uh, and again, the U.S. is blowing through all those red lights, standing on the red line. And here we are, you know, uh, with massive escalation.
0: You might imagine from the U.S. perspective that if, if war with China is inevitable, better now. Intent, you know, with sort of China's economy and development only on the increase, if it's got to happen any time or it's got to happen sometime, it might as well be now because it's just going to get harder as the U.S. declines and China um, rises. I mean, I don't w- want that to be the case, but uh, that that there's some logic to that thinking. Um, Let me also ask you, KJ, what does this say about the state of U.S. politics, right? Whether it is true or not that Nancy Pelosi has undertaken this trip against the wishes of the leader of her party and the president of the United States, as well as the U.S. military and all its intelligence agencies, as is being presented publicly, it's—again, it's hard for me to understand who the messaging on this serves at all, if it's not true I don't know why we are being sold this, because it does make the party look like it is not in control of its members. And you have this sort of rogue, you know, rogue uh, member of Congress doing something inflammatory that the rest of the party would prefer her not do. But Joe Biden and, and the rest of them have no control. I what You know, Tom Friedman, a man who I do not usually quote with any respect, has said it it speaks to our political dysfunction. And I have to say, whether it is true or whether this information is
4: being fed to us deliberately, it certainly does. You know, I tend to disagree with people who say that, you know, this is a signal that there's uh, discoordination, that, you know, the administration is not in control. Uh, I believe that that messaging is about plausible deniability, and once again, if you pan out, you look at the trajectory of um, you know, the administration's actions, uh, then you can see that clearly this is uh, something that is being planned. Is the timing exactly what they want? Perhaps not, but certainly it's all within the domain or the range of actions that they want. And once again, you pointed out very correctly, the U.S. sees it to its advantage. Uh, to engage in war with China sooner rather than later. This is, uh, you know, explicitly point, uh, you know, uh, you know, pointed out in the RAND study, Thinking Through the Unthinkable, which talks about, you know, the pros and cons of war with uh, China. And essentially, it recommends that the U.S. needs to engage in war between, before 2025 in order to come out ahead. And also in 2024, the DPP, the Quisling U.S. Uh, government, which, you know, is pushing for secession, uh, this will also encounter another uh, election. And they are very, very unpopular at this point. You know, I just want to remind our listeners that, you know, as we speak, there have been bomb threats on uh, Taipei Airport, and there are massive protests outside uh, the hotel where Nancy Pelosi is uh, supposed to be staying. So, even on the ground, there is a lot of resistance.
0: KJ, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but as you point out, you know, the— There was tension as Nancy Pelosi was landing and, you know, speculation about her plane being, you know, interfered with or whatever, which is probably never going to be true. But, you know, we do now have China uh, setting up uh, live fire drills that are, of course, always, uh, you know, always present the possibilities for for misunderstanding. And so it seems like the next uh, the next couple of days could also be very dangerous. And I I wonder what you think people should be watching for in the region over the next few days.
4: Well, certainly, I think that there could be the risk of uh, a military engagement resulting in massive and rapid escalation. Simply, you know, it's a powder keg right there. And as I said, the Chinese have uh, declared essentially a five-point blockade uh, around Taiwan Island. And some of those blockade exercises are coming very close, uh, you know, to the, the coastline itself, something that's Never been seen before uh, in the history of uh, you know of the relation between uh, the two regions. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and and, uh, Taiwan, I think, has Nancy Pelosi in the U.S. government to thank for that and to thank for any uh, miscalculation or anything that goes wrong. That was KJ No, journalist, scholar, educator, and member of Veterans for Peace. KJ, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, is there anywhere our listeners should go to find more of your written work?
4: Uh, They can go to Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, MR Online, Dissident Voice, and Many other places.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, KJ. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a break here in Political Misfits. We're going to come back in the next hour and talk more about that polio outbreak in New York State that might be a lot bigger than uh, than this one case would have us think. Could be, which is very scary. And there's also apparently in a county with uh, very low vaccination rates that had a measles outbreak not too long ago. Which makes it even more concerning. Yeah.
1: And this polio uh, appears to have come from an actual polio vaccine. Right. Somebody was vaccinated and instead of developing an immunity to it, developed polio. Mm
0: -hmm. Not a vaccine used in the United States. Correct. Right. A vaccine, a live vaccine, type of live vaccine that's used elsewhere. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We're going to get into what exactly is in this bill that is being touted as the uh, potential victory for Democrats of this entire administration. Yes. Is it better than nothing, which is the assessment, the generous assessment I've seen. We're going to get into all that and a whole lot more here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We will be right back. Political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriakou, trying to get our heart rates down a little bit after a conversation about just how tense this, this situation in Taiwan yeah. and across the Taiwan Strait actually is. Yeah, it is that's really, right. it is. I don't know, man. I don't know if you thought they were going to cancel this trip at the last minute
1: or I, if she was going to go through with it. I was hopeful that yeah. they would cancel it. And then when we saw her plane headed toward the Philippines yesterday, mm-hmm. and the Philippines wasn't on the original list, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, this is good. They're they're substituting the Philippines for uh, for yeah. Taiwan, and no such luck.
0: Honestly, like U.S. foreign uh, policy is sort of the history of U.S. foreign relations is us doing something terrible, and other countries that you know disagree, saying, "Hey, could we have a conversation about this in a multilateral format?" Hey, mm-hmm. we, we have this format mm-hmm. for conversations about just these topics. Why don't we go? And then us saying, "Like you monsters, how dare you? Yeah. How dare you suggest some such thing?" <laughs> it's just the more the deeper <sighs> you dig, the more you see this repeated pattern. Well, we're done talking about that. We're going to talk about credit card debt. We're going to talk about profits for big oil. We're going to talk about polio. Uh, (laughs) Democrats trying a new tactic, calling Republicans extremists, Uh, a whole bunch of fun stuff to get into with our next guest. We're joined by Dan Lazar, journalist and writer. Dan, thanks for joining us.
5: Uh, My pleasure
0: sorry you didn't get the real scary stuff but i think <laughs> big oil profits and credit card uh uh snookering oh, yeah. is actually pretty scary and dangerous itself uh so let's start with let's start with bp which tripled its profits in the second quarter of the year bringing in 8.5 billion in profit uh, three times is what it made in the same quarter last year. The New York Times, in a story about this issue, points out that the five biggest Western oil companies, BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, and Total Energies, generated $60 billion in profits for this for the second quarter guys. Uh, They also spent 25 of that billion, so nearly half, buying back their own shares to raise the value of their stocks and deliver more money to their shareholders, as is, of course, their mission. They can't really choose not to do that, uh, much as they might want to convince us that their mission is to provide needed energy to the world or bring us into a clean energy future without disrupting our present. Um, I liked this statement by the CEO of BP saying, look, You know, we're all very excited about all the money we're making, but this is no time for uh, highfalutin ideas. We're we're not going to get drawn into believing this new world will be the new world forever. We're cognizant of the industry's history. I feel like if you are a fossil fuel CEO, shouldn't you be cognizant or thinking about the future, right? But think they're just aware of uh, money going up and down in the past. Uh, The Times also pointed out an interesting contrast in responses to these profits, noting that President Biden has accused oil companies of profiteering off surging energy prices. So that's it. He's just accused them of that. Uh, Britain, home of BP and Shell, has announced a special tax on the industry's extraordinary profits. And, you know far be it from me to praise the United Kingdom very often, but a windfall tax is a lot better than Joe Biden's uh, empty threats. And so, you know, Dan, I just want to ask, what what should we make of this? What are the implications of these huge profits in an industry we all understand to be actively threatening the planet we live on?
5: Well, you know, I'm actually not that enamored of a windfall profit tax. Okay. Um, uh, I think that I mean I mean I think that what would be extremely effective, but of course it's politically absolutely unthinkable. Would be a price a, a surtax on crude. Okay. Now that would drive prices up at the pump, but would also drive crude oil prices downward. It would actually hurt the BP and the other major oil companies severely, if the tax is big enough. Um, And also, uh, whether you like it or not, it would hurt Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, the American oil patch, American shale producers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So so it'd be a highly uh, effective—and anybody who sees these kinds of—this price mechanism in action will agree. Mm -hmm. Um, The trouble is, of course, it's just politically uh, unthinkable.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't gross. think this it is
5: in raise the prices for the this rate price prices for consumers.
0: I don't think this is in the big bill the Democrats are so excited about. Dan, <laughs>
5: no, 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 no. no there, there have been proposals for for carbon taxes over the years, and, mm-hmm. and they and they and they're and you know academics are big fans of them. Many environmentalists are as well, but the uh but. They have never, you know, gotten a single inch in Congress.
0: No, and so instead we have these again, just massive taxes at a time when regular people are suffering. We have uh, yeah. the UK, you know. I guess a windfall tax is better than absolutely nothing, which is what we've done in the United States, and yeah. that seems to be about it.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's better than nothing certainly, but I um, mean, yeah. But the but but you know, but all the 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 fiscal powers the. The uh, the financial powers, etc., have driven up oil prices. Mm-hmm. So so you no know, so when those prices are driven up. It's not very surprising that oil producers wind up making big profits. Mm-hmm. But there are but really society has the ability the power to essentially drive oil prices down, um, and and reduce you know, BP and others to a shadow of their former selves. And also, by the way. You know, really punish oil-producing countries and oil-producing regions. But uh, the, the tools are there. There's no question about it. It's only people who are afraid to, to pick them up and put them to use.
0: Just to make it very explicit here, Dan, why?
5: Well, because the, uh, because um, someone said that, that public policy in the West is based on uh, keeping wages high and all other commodity prices low. Um, and, uh, and as a result, oil is kept very, you know, very cheap. I mean, America has the, has the lowest gasoline prices in the entire industrialized world. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and as a consequence, uh, uh, gasoline is grossly overused, overused tremendously. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who sat in a traffic jam will tell you that. Anybody who had to breathe exhaust. Anyone suffering from global warming, mm-hmm. which of course is the is every last soul on the, on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so these are all cases of of, of overproduction and overuse, and uh, and clearly, clearly, any any serious uh, climate, you know, uh, reform movement and and there, there aren't many of those out there, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. But any serious movement uh, would have to use the taxing mechanisms to strongly discourage uh, fossil fuels, and then to use the revenue to to develop uh, hydro, solar, uh, et cetera. And equally important, if not more more important, uh, conservation.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i also want to ask about another uh um... I mean, yeah. no go ahead dan no
5: i mean it's is it's it's not very sexy stuff it's, i mean it's kind of very wonkish uh but um but that is really the the solution the, the problem is politically there's there's sort of you, you sort of can't get there from there from here so that's the issue yeah
0: and we are we sort of in a, a a political circus that presents itself as constantly looking for solutions instead of, you know, studiously avoiding the ones that are right in front of them. And that, you know, it gets really, once you catch on to that, it's it's tiring and a little mm-hmm. bit frustrating to act as though, no, we're going to yeah. commission another paper and figure out the the real way we can do it when it is, as you say, it's in front of you, it's not necessarily sexy, but it can be done, and the hurdle is political. Right. Um. This might be a story that just uh, caught my eye, but isn't really a huge thing. But I, you know, when I see a story about credit card companies spending a lot of money marketing their credit cards to consumers, I don't know. I I feel like, okay, well, why? Why are they thinking there's a bunch of money to be made in the immediate future? And so this is this Wall Street Journal story today about, as I said, big banks spending big on marketing uh, their credit cards to consumers and having a great deal of success. Um, Credit card spending is way up, breaking records in some places, but credit card debt remains low with both Capital One and J.P. Morgan total debt balances below what they were in 2019. So what I am seeing is that they've got to get more people back to paying 17 percent interest or whatever the rate is on credit card debts these days. And, you know, this is, of course business as usual. Uh, I think during the pandemic, uh, people managed to pay off some of their debt, credit card debt among, it, among uh, those debts, which brought these balances down. But of course, the only reason these companies market these cards is because it makes them money. And so it's sort of been pointing out, well, you know, inflation is running high. We are in a recession now, doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so I wonder, you know if you think there is anything interesting to be read into this intense credit card marketing at a time of economic uh, uncertainty and insecurity for a lot of people,
5: yeah, they're 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 fleecing the consumers mm-hmm. and they're 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 fleecing the working class. I mean, people, Americans should be very careful about acquiring new credit cards, taking on debt, spending on credit because these are very uncertain times, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I mean, consumers should really take care. Uh, but these banks are pushing these cards in the hope that they'll do the opposite, mm-hmm. and these cards, of course, have adjustable uh, uh, interest rates. So mm-hmm. therefore, if interest when interest rates rise, as they as they will, due to the Federal Reserve, these banks—it's a way of the banks cushioning themselves, protecting themselves by squeezing more revenue out of consumers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really completely outrageous. America allows this to happen because you know, because uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 credit card companies have their talons into into Congress. In fact, there was a certain. Uh, uh, a certain senator from Delaware who was such a devoted, you know, uh, you know, acolyte of the credit card numbers. He was known as the senator from M.D.A., I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And that was a major credit card company with headquarters in Delaware. Mm-hmm. That Senator was, of course, Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, no, it's just it's completely outrageous. It's just it just is a, another example of how uh, of how. Parasitic and even vampirish. The uh, the the financial class has, has grown, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 the government, you know, just doesn't. Not only doesn't make an effort to to stop them, it really just just shows them the green light.
0: Uh, you must have seen Dan this headline going around about this Bank of America memo. Uh, in which uh, Bank of America, like a mid-year review memo from last month, uh, expressed the hope that the unemployment rate in the U.S. would go up and said, by the end of next year, we hope the ratio of job openings to unemployed is down to the more normal highs of the last business cycle. It caught my eye because, I mean, of course, of course that's what they want, right? But to me, you know, as to what you were saying, uh, you know, these companies never get tired of of nickel and diming you, right? Oh, like yeah. never imagine that a company can be so large or so wealthy that they won't move the earth to take a dollar out of your pocket, and because this is Bank of America, I just sort of went down a little rabbit hole, looking at their like history of uh, you know corporate crimes. They have made dirty dozen lists of, of some of the biggest corporate criminals in the United States, and the most recent, you know, they, they got a twenty billion dollar bailout in two thousand nine. Uh, their most recent. Um, The Bank of America settlement that I could find was from this May when it had to pay $10 million to settle a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau claim that it had illegally helped creditors strip funds out of its customers' accounts in violation of state law and charged the customers fees for stripping the money out of their accounts. And so, again, you know, it is just uh, the fact that these companies can continue to exist— you know, this goes to what you were saying, Dan. The government doesn't do anything. They impose these different fines that never actually affect a, a uh, large-scale change of business practices or anything. And you just sort of, like, trundle along. And every every couple of years, Bank of America pays uh, $10 million and then goes back to, you know, like, try, trying to get another 5 bucks out of your wallet. It's incredible.
5: Yeah. Well, over the last—since you know, 2008 or 2009— the uh the 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 Federal Reserve has been shoveling money via sub sub uh, via negative real yeah. interest rates it's into true. wall Street mm-hmm. and that's all that that's all that policy amounts to. yeah it's a, you know it's a it's WPA for uh, for for m a experts you know and uh, and and they have received i mean vast amounts and they have used that to to send the stock market into orbit to send real estate into orbit. And Mm -hmm. by the way, though, no one talks about it. Those skyrocketing real estate prices are the chief cause of homelessness. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the fact is that the homeless are being priced out of homes uh, due to policies uh, put in place by the Federal Federal Reserve. Um, And, you know, it's, it's astonishing that essentially Wall Street's profits come at the costs of, you know, something on the order of half a million people living on sidewalks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's horrifying. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about domestic policy and and politics a bit. I I wanted to get your thoughts on— this, this bill has been floating around for a while, but John and I haven't really gotten into what is in this bill that the Washington Post last week was heralding as a, a big win oh, yeah. for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Uh, but the lever had a good breakdown of the bill that the pre- Post is presenting as a huge achievement, and in it concludes the bill is better than nothing and that it, it contains significant investments in climate and renewable energy balanced of course by expanding federal oil and gas leasing and other sops to fossil fuels on one hand it allows drug negotiations by medicare to some degree and it will keep health insurance premiums down but the way it's doing this is by giving more money to health insurance companies who are uh, you know distorting the economy and exploiting people already and so you know i wonder if if there is anything either surprisingly good or or surprisingly bad about this bill that's jumped out to you and you know if Joe Biden does manage to get this to pass because it has not and apparently Kristen Cinema is holding out about some you know p- particular corporate tax loopholes. Uh, but if it does pass, you know y- is it indeed better than nothing you know is is this going to boost is it on one hand, is it a good sort of full stop and is it going to be a political good for his party?
5: Well, first of all, number one, I'm 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 pleasantly surprised that they have any bill at all. Yeah. Because uh, I thought that it was dead. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and someone said they must have found uh, found pictures of Joe Mansion with kitty porn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that on on uh, Sputnik Radio, or will essentially the the, the, the FBI shut us down? No. Right. In any case. Um, any case, but uh, but yeah, you know, this is this is Congress, this is the U.S. Congress. You know, it is just like it is just a a reflection of the oligarchy, it is beholden to business interests, so it's continually giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so so so, yeah, there's some there's some some good things in it. I mean, on balance, 10 years from now, or even five years from now. Will it make a significant dent in in terms of uh, of 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 uh, climate emissions? I'll bet you ten dollars now. yeah I mean mean I mean I mean, I think that in the end everyone will figure out how to game it, and they'll find that it's porous, like everything else that comes out of out of Congress. it will be filled with loopholes, you know I mean, I mean, one thing America has is scads of great lawyers, so they will hire them by the the dozens to figure out ways of getting around it and then of course i mean of course mansion who has a lives in a coal state as a personally has made millions off the coal business Mm -hmm. uh you know is going to make sure the coal business you know is uh, winds up okay Mm -hmm. um you know and this always happens this always happens i mean somehow you know i mean going back to the um to upton sinclair's book the jungle yeah uh you know the the the, the regulations that that an outraged nation put in place in response to to, uh, to Sinclair's expose about conditions in the Chicago slaughterhouses, the slaughterhouses made out fine. Uh, <laughs> they 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 wrote the regulations that actually wound up shutting out small producers and you know and concentrating the business and big producers. Yeah, and so they told you don't have to worry you know don't don't fret you know don't wake up in the middle of the night because the 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 big companies have it all fixed mm. so that they will come out on top it's just it, we have a, we have more than a century of experience so that's one thing we can say for sure
0: yeah i mean i think anytime yeah. you you have support for a bill like this by the very industries that it's supposed to regulate you you know what that means right and it's consistently yeah. these things are presented as what a great what a great example of compromise. What a great example of both sides coming together to work toward the common good. I mean, I don't know what kind of up truck you have to have fallen off of to still believe that Exxon or Bank of America uh, has any interest in the common good. You know, I, I feel like step one is maybe to, to get rid of that uh, belief right and then anytime they want something anytime they go oh yeah this is good this will work for us you you have to know that it's inef- ineffective at best
5: yeah i mean i think i think people um tend to lose sight of how actually extreme things are in america and how deeply upset and discouraged americans are mm-hmm. yeah i mean i mean that, that i think it's very very deep uh, and um and I and I think that they that that they have lost faith in their their government as any kind of democratic instrument, mm-hmm. and uh, and they just they just think that you know that that nothing can be done, nothing will be done. There will always be a snag. There will always be a scam. Mm-hmm. You know, the, some some rich person will wind up okay, and some small little guy, a little gal, will, get, will end up screwed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that seems to be the way of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it shouldn't be. But that's the way Americans perceive their society, not at all incorrectly.
0: No, it, it shouldn't be. And it also doesn't have to be. But I think, yeah, they perceive it this way correctly. And the problem with that is they also have uh, bought into this idea that America represents sort of the extent of, of political possibility. Right. And the Democratic yeah. and Republican Party represent the extent of, of political possibility. And that's not true. You know, so you have to say on one hand, yeah, you're right. You're right. These guys are going to screw you at every chance. And it, there is always going to be a snag and, and everything you said, Dan. But the good news is we don't have to do it this way. Uh, but the sort of propaganda about the the this very small closed circle that our society represents and that this is, you know, we're like in the Truman Show and that's the end of the entire world, that has been incredibly effective. Um, and this sort of, it kind of leads me into this this uh, next uh, story and topic of conversation I wanted to ask you about, Dan. It's it's this story about, again, democratic tactics going into the midterms, but it really reveals that, you know, I think you have two parties in the United States who are, uh Increasingly focused on, on winning the vote of this incredibly narrow sliver of the population and really focused on this idea that you have swing voters that are going to go back and forth between two parties instead of the reality that just people are going to stop engaging at all, right? And I know that they don't they don't care if, you know, 5% of the American electorate turns out for any election. But, you know, the fact that they are, you know, people are not necessarily just going from red to blue and back again uh, means that you can't, you know, you can't count on if you convince someone that the other guy is a is a nutcase. You can't count on them coming over to you. You know <laughs> they don't have to do that. Unite might, might not win on this tactic, and so. You have uh, Edward Isaac Devere. I've never actually looked up how to pronounce his last name. He is, of course, a a well-known defender of the centrist wing of the Democrats. He's a well-known author of uh, hit pieces on on the likes of Bernie Sanders and Dave Sirota. And he now tells us that Democrats, uh, fearing a midterm wipeout, are trying to unify around the simple midterm message that Republicans are extremists. Uh, It starts by saying— Democrats are seized by genuine panic about the prospect of Republicans winning control of Congress and governor's mansions across the country. This story is from a couple days ago. I feel like, Dan, the idea that this party wants to be seen as seized by panic now, when arguably their midterm chances now look a little better than they did maybe four months ago, is, is this party just trying to present itself as, as looking unprepared and inept at all times. Uh, the other thing is, how is this? A, I mean, really? Like you want us the, to? Th- the,
5: the answer is seemingly yes. I'm yeah, sorry, I on. mean,
0: no, it's true. Like that's all. That's all we can assume. And also, this idea that he's he's setting this up as a new tactic to call the Republican opponents extremists. I mean, they they set this situation up. They spent. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They spent forty four million dollars at least in Republican primaries to support extremist candidates. If they did that. Without knowing if they could get the party leaders on board to call them extremists, that's even more dangerous than just doing it in the first place. I just I don't know what what we are to think about the strategy of this party that is actually in control of government for now, although who knows for how long.
5: Oh, I agree. I mean, funding Republican extremists uh, on the and the, the hope that they'll be easier to uh, to to beat in the fall is just insane. But but as you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, in the opening stages of the 2016 election mm-hmm. in 2015, actually was was rooting for Trump quite openly because mm-hmm. she thought Trump would be easier to beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit of a miscalculation, I would uh, say.
0: Yeah, they have uh, been doing this since 2016. <laughs> and so, one, they, can't, yeah. they haven't realized that it's a losing strategy. And two, they want us to think it's
5: new. Well, so there, there are two things wrong with DeVere's uh, article, if if you ask me. Um, uh, one is that um, you sort of can't beat something with nothing. So, yeah, you can sort of you know, paint the Republicans as extreme, and that will have some effect, presumably— But then they're staring back at Joe Biden Mm
2: -hmm.
5: and they're saying, like, my God, you know, anything is better than this. This guy is the is is the walking brain dead. And by the way, and 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 we still haven't don't know what's going to happen in the in 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 the Taiwan Straits yet. Right. But give that a few days to see what see what happens there. And I I guarantee that Biden will will take a huge hit over his. Astonishing mismanagement of this whole affair. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two. Um, uh, Devere publishes an article on, uh, on on CNN.com. Uh, I think it was two months ago. CNN ran a poll which found that American voters viewed both parties as extremist, and equal in equal numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. They, they I, admittedly, the Republicans are a bit bonkers over guns and abortion. Mm-hmm. But you know, when 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 a tape of Nancy Pelosi, you know, introducing a a, a conference, says, oh, "My name is Nancy Pelosi, and 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 the and my pronoun, pronouns are they and them," I mean, for ninety eight percent of the population, this is bizarre, mm-hmm. and this presents the spectacle of a of a party that has been taken over by lunatics, as far as I can tell. I mean, you know, the, the word Latinx, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has like it has like three percent usage rate among Latinos, mm-hmm. and all of those are either in government or or higher education. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, so the, so the population looks at the Democrats and says they're nuts. They look at the Republicans with their with their guns and anti abortion stuff and say they're nuts. Mm-hmm. So I guess therefore. You know, the choice in November becomes comes down between, you know, nutty, nutty and nuttier.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, the Republicans Uh, have done a pretty good job of convincing someone that, you know, Latinx, I personally, I think, is sort of silly, but is Far less harmful than Republican positions on on abortion and guns. And like, again, you know, I think uh, Democratic theatricality about some of this stuff uh, is, you know, masks their inability to do anything substantive. But I think, you know, I just want to I think I want to be clear that the, the two parties are not equally nutty.
5: Well, I, 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 yes, you are correct. I mean, the Republicans are truly going off in a neo-fascist direction, but, mm-hmm. but, but the, but the trouble with this, these kind of stuff among the, among the Democrats is that, you know, things are turning really explosive. racial relations are really bad and, 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 and displays like this essentially throw gasoline on the fire mm-hmm. and they discredit the Republic, the Democrats as any kind of effective political alternative. Mm-hmm. So, um. So, uh, so I, I, so I mean, yeah, of course you're right. I mean, the, of course. the Dobbs, Dobbs, the, you know, Uvalde, these are horrors, absolutely horrors, mm-hmm. but, but the, but the Democrats present such a completely unattractive face to the vast, you know, the, the great bulk of the, of the working population mm-hmm. that you sort of just find yourself shaking your head in dismay and, 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 and therefore it seems that seems to undermine democratic tactics by focusing on the other guy's extremism and yeah. I hope that no one will mention your own
0: yeah. Let me ask you, Dan, before we let you go, I mean, because we could talk about this, 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 what this party is trying to do for a very long time. But I I do want to make sure we get to um, to polio, which kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, Yesterday, New York officials urged anyone in the state who hasn't been vaccinated against polio to get vaccinated. And honestly, I had been following this. this headline for the past couple of weeks, but I cannot remember if John and I mentioned it on the show. But of course, uh, last month, I think it was July 21st, we got reports of a case of paralytic polio in the United States mm-hmm. in an unvaccinated young person. Uh, now we've learned that polio was present in the wastewater of the New York County that patient was in the month before the case was made public. And as the CDC says, about one in 200 people infected with polio virus develop paralysis. So it is possible that Many more people have been infected. Um, it also appears that this strain of vaccine-derived polio is linked to viruses found in wastewater in London and Jerusalem, which might su- suggest, you know, a, a multinational, sustained spread of the virus, according to Ars Technica. Uh, and so, you know, what what are we to think? How how should people in New York be reacting to this?
5: The explanation is actually very simple. Uh, it's the uh, it's the Hasi team. Uh, Rockland County uh, in New York oh. has a a very large ultra Orthodox Jewish population, mm, and they course. and they they exist in, in a small number of boroughs and towns mm-hmm. that are are essentially enclaves, uh, little fortresses. This is thanks to decades of unsavory deals with uh, with Democrats in Albany, um, and uh, and and they 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 flout these and innumerable other. Laws and measures in education, public health, et cetera, et cetera, mm. um, and uh, and the state has. Not tried very hard to overcome this, but yes, you're absolutely correct. This and so the Jerusalem makes perfect sense, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I don't know about London, but uh, London has a has a significant Pacific portion uh, population mm-hmm. uh, as well, and I suspect that that's at the root of it. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, you know, no, 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 I'm not presenting an argument that you know it's all their fault, but but this this part this problem crops up again and again and again with this population, which. Uh, which obeys God's law and not man's.
0: It was noted there was a, a measles <laughs> outbreak in that county. Uh, I forget exactly when, but it was the site of a pretty large measles outbreak. Again, a childhood disease that most people are vaccinated for. And I think public schools require you to be vaccinated for. Uh,
5: there's yeah. a, there's a, the even more, I mean, more remarkable example is that there have been outbreaks of um, of herpes infections on the penises of uh, of newborns
0: yeah yeah um,
5: and the reason is that the 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 Hasidic uh, moils who are the the ones who perform circumcisions mm. um essentially staunch the flood, the the flow of blood with their mouths yes this is the traditional mess method, uh, uh, method and at least the communication of certain kinds yeah. of viruses and the city authorities which could stop it, but have so far not stopped at all because the, the 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 rabbis have their flock vote on on block. They're very powerful, and uh, and the the city's afraid to stand up to them. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, what
0: a can of Sorry. worms this! We thought polio was bad enough. Now we have wow. to open up, you know, re- religious tensions, political corruption. What are you know, uh, Sorry. anti-Semitism Sorry. versus that's not anti-Semitism. It's just p- good public policy. Thanks a lot, Dan. <laughs> well, how?
6: Sorry, Sorry I mean, but that's the way the word most works. people, most
0: people are are po- honestly. I do not remember. Polio is still a standard childhood vaccine. Right, yeah. if you if you're going to go correct. to public school, yes. so like, it should should people really be concerned uh, in New York or,
5: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah? I mean, polio <laughs> is a uh, is a yeah, yeah. A darn, darn, tootin they should. Do we all need to go uh, get
0: polio boosters? I realize I, you're I, not I, a doctor.
5: I I, I, yes, yeah, I know the answer to that. I presume not, but uh, but if, if someone knows contrary, please let me know and I'll be first in line. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, cool. COVID monkeypox, uh, now, now polio. Terrific. Can't wait to see Bye. what's next. <laughs> that, was, that was writer Dan Lazar. Dan, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about burn pits and burn pit legislation. You're on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. And we'll be right back.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co host, Michelle Witte. Many of you have heard me speak about my best friend from high school, Colonel David McCracken, who died 10 years ago after developing a rare form of brain cancer after serving as the officer in charge of the U.S. Army's burn pits, first in Kosovo and later in Iraq. After years of lobbying, the Pentagon has finally acknowledged that devastating effects that the toxic uh, burn pits have had on American servicemen and servicewomen, but Congress has been slow to act. A bill that went to vote in the Senate last week that would have provided $280 billion in new spending on veterans' health over the next decade passed a procedural vote 84 to 14, but then at the last minute, 26 Republicans changed their votes and the bill died. It'll come up for a vote one more time, but Democrats are now not optimistic that they'll be able to break the Republican filibuster. In the meantime, veterans are suffering with no help from the government that they served. We're joined by Rosie Torres. She's executive director and co-founder of the Burn Pits 360 Veterans Organization. Welcome to the show, Rosie. Thanks for joining us. We're very happy to have you. Before we get into the specifics of the Bill Rosie, tell us about what our veterans are facing after exposure to toxins from the burn pits. And I should add that burn pits are how the Pentagon disposes of its waste, all of its waste, uh, in war zones overseas. They bulldoze garbage, medical waste, unused vehicles, literally anything into a pit. They hose it down with jet fuel. And then they light it on fire. That's a burn pit. Tell us about the results of exposure.
6: Yeah, look, I mean, veterans are coming back from war after being exposed to these um, massive burn pits. Uh, it, it, they're experiencing um, glioblastomas, brain cancers, uh, cancers of the throat, colon cancer, lung disease, um, dementia-like symptoms, cognitive issues, um, and a lot, a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, suicide.
2: Good
1: Lord. Republicans are complaining that the bill, which is called the PACT bill, uh, contains $400 billion in unnecessary spending. The Democrats counter that the money is going to be spent anyway, and they just decided to put it in this bill rather than in some other bill, and that the Republicans are using an accounting trick to block the bill. Can you explain to us what the bill would do and why it's being held up?
6: I mean, bottom line, it's what we've been working on for 13 years. It would grant presumption uh, for 25 uh, illnesses that we have tracked and, and, and handed over to policymakers that, you know, cover those conditions, such as the cancers and, and the respiratory diseases. But this way, the families and the survivors no longer have to be their own um, researchers, lawyers. They can spend those last hours. For those that are in hospice, making memories and and Mm -hmm. last moments with their loved ones instead of having to run around collecting buddy statements. They won't have to be, uh, you know, trying to prove an association. Um, And, uh, you know, these veterans are tired. They've expressed a lot of feelings to me this afternoon. And and if you'd like, I could share some of those with you.
1: Uh, But tell us a little bit about... uh, um about why the the Pentagon took so long to even acknowledge that this was a problem. You know, we 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 had years pass before they admitted that that there was a correlation between the burn pits and some of these rare cancers like glioblastomas and other brain cancers. Why did it take them so long?
6: Um, I think it was money, you know, it, it, it all boiled back down to cost and um, they just weren't willing to, you know, they put up this delay and deny tactic uh, and really were just telling veterans that it was a somatoform disease, that they were suffering from anxiety. And, uh, you know, our family was one of those uh, families that were told these lies. Yeah. So, we you know, we took matters in our hands. We, 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 we formed a, a coalition of, of allies such as uh, researchers, doctors, legal experts, to make sure we had all of our information in line. And we took the 9-11 blueprint and we delivered on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When my friend David became ill, um, he uh, he died very quickly, just in something like eight months, uh, seven months. And the Pentagon, like I said, wouldn't even acknowledge that his exposure to the burn pit toxins had played any role in the development of his brain cancer. What's available now for victims of the burn pits? Is there anything different over the last 10 years? No, no, no.
6: Nothing until the bill passes. I mean, there's no... Acknowledgement. You still have to fight to prove. Eighty percent of their claims are denied. Um, really, we've been leading the space, and that's why we have um, a, a page on our on our website that that uh, we have titled as uh, resources and support, and they can download um, you know letters that they can take to their doctors. They can navigate their health care. They can navigate the claim system. Um, Yeah, there
1: really is nowhere to go. You know, when um, when my friend died, uh, his wife wanted him to be buried in uh, Arlington National Cemetery, and uh, he lived in Georgia at the time of his death. And so Arlington Cemetery said, sorry, but it wasn't a, a service related death. And she said, well, it's. Clearly a service-related death. He's 47 years old. He developed this crazy one-in-a-million brain tumor in the center of his brain that's directly tied to the toxins coming out of the burn pits. She got her congressman involved. She got both of her U.S. senators involved. And Arlington Cemetery said, that's all fine and good, but the Pentagon says it wasn't service-related. And so he's buried in uh, in Georgia. Right. He was not given the honor that that really was due him to to have a military uh, funeral in Arlington Cemetery. Now that the Pentagon has at least acknowledged the correlation, you know, not that there's any money to help anybody until this bill passes. But now that they've acknowledged the correlation, has it made your job any easier or the lives of the people suffering from these cancers any easier?
6: No, no. no. Wow. Um, you know, I talk, to, I talk to soldiers all the time. They need to publicly state and on their websites and everywhere else that this is an instrumentality of war, Period. Yes. And that we're going to work hard uh, to give. me. Sorry about that.
2: It's OK. These
6: soldiers and these veterans, what what they're due, and stop denying, you know, um, we have a long way to go. This bill doesn't mean that everything's going to be automatic.
0: Wow. I just also as you know, listening to this conversation, it, it leaps to mind the funding that was made available for the quote unquote victims of Havana syndrome right. that happened basically Overnight. in the blink of an eye, right? You mm-hmm. had maybe eight months worth of reporting on these vague symptoms, which you know it's all disappeared now that had no known cause, were not, you know what I mean? Like th- that were only loosely related that could not actually be tied to anything in particular. And yet how much money was made available for, for the medical care of the people who wow. were supposedly victimized by that? And yet for for soldiers- you know, who uh, for better or for worse are, are sent to fight in these uh, in these wars. You have to fight tooth and nail for every kind of compensation. It is really the the dichotomy there is really shocking. $30 million. $30 million for how many people? You know what I mean? Yeah. And again, what, you a half have a you dozen have, people and you have soldiers still quartered. I mean, look at Red Hill, right? Yeah. You have soldiers, families against it. Yeah, I, I personally think the U.S. military should be involved far less overseas. But that doesn't mean I think the families of these service members should live in houses that are full of lead paint. Mm-hmm. Even a- after asking for years and years to say, hey, could you give us some some safe housing, or to live in houses where their water is going to be contaminated yeah. by petroleum and be lied to. That's right. And so, like the tre- I feel like the the treatment of our soldiers. You know, on one hand, you have this sort of uh, uh, hero worship, right? Where you, everyone stops and thanks you for your service mm-hmm. on a plane or whatever, mm-hmm. but God forbid that come in the form of like material compensation and acknowledgement for this harm. I The, the contrast yeah, and, to me is really uh,
2: and medical e-
1: assistance when they need it the most. Yeah, you know, you come home. My my buddy Dave came home so proud of his service. Mm-hmm. Right. He was so proud of what he did and he had come from a military family his, his dad was a sergeant mm-hmm. and he had made it all the way up to, to Colonel and then he got sick with this rare brain cancer and he thought, well, the, the military has always been so good to me. They'll it was his whole life. They'll take care of me and yep. they did nothing for him. Yep. They wouldn't even acknowledge that he was sick because of his service. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. shameful. And here we are 10 years later and his wife is still fighting. That acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, so tell us uh, real quickly, and I apologize that we're running a little bit short of time, uh, Rosie. But tell us where uh, our listeners can go to read more about what you're working on and and how they can get involved. I think this is really important stuff.
6: Yeah, sure. They can go to burnpit360.org. Um, they can uh, visit all our social media. <laughs> Some all our social media platforms, and um, they can um, download documents there. They can get um, access to services there. Uh, a lot of information there. I mean, it's it's the one you know website that has uh, documents that's going to help them you know, it, it, during this transition as the bill gets
1: passed, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you one other quick question. Um, are you optimistic that this bill is going to pass? Uh, the, the fight is over this this $400 billion funding. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, offered Republican Senator Pat Toomey, who's leading the opposition, offered him an amendment saying, um, what we'll let you do is we'll let you sponsor an amendment saying— This amendment takes out the four hundred million, right? And he said, "No, I don't want an amendment on the four hundred million. I want you to take it out right now." Well, the rest of the government needs to be funded. The four hundred million has to get passed. Four hundred billion has to get passed anyway. Um, Schumer said he's going to bring it back for a vote. Five Republicans voted yes. They need the Democrats need ten Republicans to vote yes to get it past cloture are you optimistic that that it's finally going to be passed into law
6: um you know I yeah, I'll just share with you one 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 thing that these veterans told me um they said we're tired folks are exhausted and can't believe we have to be out here uh this long some you know they're bringing the vet center out here for like veterans crisis. Mm -hmm. um to counselors like this is triggering a lot of things for a lot of people so you know they said we're cautiously optimistic that this will be brought to a vote um but they don't ever want this to happen again so they want a meeting with the president they want a meeting with the majority minority leader more so because they don't want it to happen again they don't want to be political pawns they don't want Mm -hmm. all politics happening so that's why i I promised i would share with you guys and i'm hoping you can get that message out
1: We're certainly going to try. Thanks for joining us, Rosie Torres. Rosie is executive director and co-founder of the Burn Pits 360 Veterans Organization. You're listening to Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have some final headlines for you.
0: On Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Whitty. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We have a, well, John promised a few last headlines, but it's just us expressing some personal opinions right now. No, no, <laughs> you know, no. I, I
1: bought a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, let me interrupt you for Please. one second. I bought a friend of mine one of these. Hardcover books with just blank paper inside, you know, for note taking and stuff. A journal. But, uh, well, yeah, it's like a journal. It's sure, a journal. But on the on the front cover, it says um, "co-workers I'd like to punch in the face." Oh yeah, right. You've seen those? Yes. They yeah, advertise I a, everywhere. I have a book like that. I thought it was very funny. She was appalled and said she could never take this into work. But I said to you uh, during the break, I want to punch Matt Gates in the face. Yeah, yeah. And although like you put, wouldn't do it, John, I no, would never I encourage other people to do it. I either. wouldn't. I, I, I would do it like a Three Stooges thing where I'd go up to him and say, yada, yada. Uh,
0: I have just the uh, people I'd like to punch in the face. So mine is more
1: uh, yeah. comprehensive.
0: No,
2: I like no, my coworkers. Just, I don't want to punch anybody. It here. just
0: seems hey. worth mentioning. Matt, Matt Gaetz seems to be on this tear about how uh, women women at abortion, like pro-choice rallies are ugly. And so that it's oh, just like, geez. how how is this? our political discourse at this moment yeah. where everyone's going, ha ha ha. Yeah. Matt Gates said that woman's never going to need an abortion because she's ugly. And tweeting a picture of Donald Trump, like point appearing to point at a woman's breast. I think it's a camera angle or whatever, but like, ha. it's just like for, for a lot of these people, it's just being a woman is the butt of a joke. Just and- that in itself is the, is a, is a punchline and it truly is disgusting. And it really shouldn't be, you know, it, it's, it's not funny, it's just no. stupid, right? And I it's mean, it's just we,
1: stupid, especially coming from an accused pedophile.
0: Yeah. I, again, accused, right? Because Matt Gates might not be that. I'm sure. waiting for that. I'm waiting for that actual fire after all that smoke, but he doesn't yeah. need to be to be a total scumbag no, and to be a, a representative scumbag. of, You're like, right. it, you know, it's just stupid. And we didn't comment on, you know, there was a little. Uh, internet outburst a couple weeks ago at some, I think his name is Andy Stein. I don't know. The he's a Yeah, because yeah. he's just a, a, a dum-dum. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, following uh, following AOC around uh, the U.S. Capitol uh, saying, oh, you're my favorite big booty Latina, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, why is this, how is this somehow puncturing her political positions, right? You know, go, if, if you have a problem, if you think AOC is uh, is ineffective or you think she's a radical or whatever, go after that. Why is the fact that she's a woman funny in itself? Why is the fact that she's Latina funny in itself? It's just Stupid and gross. And it really, Agreed. you know, I mean, whatever, I'm all for funny politics, right? This sort of flame war between uh, Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. Oh, it's so much fun. Cracks me up. That's fun. But, but that's, that's not different. just making your gender a punchline. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Totally agree. Really. I uh, can't say anything to Matt Gates that's not sweary right now, but yeah. like, it's just embarrassing. Like, honestly, if you think this is, if you think this is cool, if like Matt Gates is like your cool troll guy, like you're an that. embarrassment, man. Like wa- walk off a bridge. Well, is there other news,
1: John? Yeah, you, you, you uh, put a story here in, in the script that grosses me out. Just the, just the headline of it grosses me out. Oh, is it out. Cat
0: Lovers Can Try Cat Food-Inspired Dishes at Fancy yeah. Feast Italian Pop-Up? That Did you sounds know, so
1: unappetizing If you
0: go read this story on CNN, you will also learn that Fancy Feast wrote a cookbook <gasps> that you can use to cook food to pair with the food your cat is eating. So you oh can eat, god. you John can eat a cat food inspired meal.
1: Oh my god!
0: I don't think dog people do it's this just, stuff.
1: No, I don't think. I don't think not.
0: there's a dog food inspired uh, trattoria in uh, Tribeca or wherever. Can yeah. you
1: imagine?
0: To be fair, it is a it's a pop up that is only open for two nights uh, later this week. Uh, and they the human friendly dishes are inspired by a new cat food line. The other subtext here that cracks me up is this idea that some like the, it quotes a fancy feast chef.
2: Oh, come really? On.
1: Really? You think some woman's like, can you imagine putting that on like your resume? Do the cats like that? The cats
0: eat fish heads out of the garbage. Yeah. I right. mean, I, sure. I I am the owner of a dog who does not eat literally anything. Right. Uh, she, you know, she turns her nose up at food sometimes, yeah. but not as much as, you know. My housemate's dog
1: does that. But
0: Still. Yeah. Yeah. He'll just walk away. Just, yeah, I mean, go ahead. As a, I think it, that
1: caught my eye just because I was like, Psh, it's a stupid cat people thing.
0: Look at these cat people being crazy over there with their trattoria. Yeah. I can't
1: even imagine, though, putting on LinkedIn, on your LinkedIn page, mm-hmm. that you're a, a cat food chef. <laughs> I, I can't imagine it.
0: It sounds like you're making some kind of like dirty double entendre. Yeah. Like if I came across that in a dating profile, I'd be like, what does that
1: mean? I mean, I could have a guess. I got a LinkedIn invitation yesterday from some guy, and on his resume, he wrote that he was held hostage by the Taliban for 196 days, and then... Underneath it, in the bullet points, um, he said, forced to eat very rudimentary food. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, come
0: on, man. This is on your resume. Wow. That's like, it just reminds me of any time. uh, It was CNN who was doing this most egregiously. I think this is during the Sochi Olympics when one of them encountered a squat toilet. And they're all like, "Whoa! Bring in the cameras, everybody! Look at this! Look how look at how people live! Don't they know how to make a real toilet?" You're like, "My God! I oh, wish I could get a squat boy, toilet in boy. my house here in the West." You heard it, folks.
1: They're better. Oh my God!
0: Um, you wanna you wanna have a little bit of a chuckle at the expensive SpaceX, or at least make them look I bad, experiencing this. them looking bad? Yeah, yeah,
1: it's like people. What are do you doing? You're littering the planet.
0: The Australian Space Agency has found more space junk in uh, a place in Australia called the Snowy Mountains. It doesn't have any snow, so <laughs> don't know what that is about. But it's a third piece of space junk found in those areas, and it's believed to be linked to a SpaceX craft. Yep. Um, uh, I think, I can't tell if all three pieces of space junk were linked to SpaceX or if just this one is. But I mean, the amount of stuff that SpaceX is sending into the sky and the, you know, it's like, oh, "Oh, we're going to do little satellite swarms. They really have not shown very much concern for uh, polluting that environment, which I understand it to be vast, but like some of it's going to fall back
1: down. And, you know, in the beginning, uh, when, when the first bunch of, of, Space junk was found. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, "Oh, it's the Chinese. The Chinese Always. did it." Of course, it yeah. is. Uh
0: huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, it turns out it's Elon Musk. Just mm-hmm. you know, sh- shooting big sheets of metal into the sky with impunity.
1: Yep. Yeah. Elon Musk, whose father told him the other day, "Wear a shirt and don't ever take it off."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um. The other. What was the other? Oh, I don't know if you. This caused again a, a bit of an uproar over the weekend. As you see, this New York Times story on mm-hmm. investing in real estate as self-care. Yeah. Out of wow. touch with do you, you have your to extra be? money how yeah. out of touch do you have to be to run a story with that headline guys it's about ladies. It's about an organization called Lady Landlords. Nice. Uh, that's about women seeking independence after a breakup or a divorce have discovered the emotional empowerment and even healing in
1: real estate development. What
0: do you know?
1: Yeah. That and, extra million that you have just sitting there doing nothing, it can make you happy.
0: It's, I mean, I do. There is something about, you know, like it, 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 there was a time in my life where I briefly thought maybe I could buy a piece of property. That time has passed. Uh, with inflation, but uh, you know, I think I would have, I would have actually felt pretty proud of myself. You know, in the sort of co- social context we live in, I sure. would have felt proud of myself as a single person who has had a very untraditional career mm-hmm. um, to be able to buy something of my own and own it. That would have felt good mm-hmm. and, and empowering to me. And I'm pretty lucky to have even been able to contemplate it. Yes. but Like the. F- Step one that has to happen is you have to be able to save some money, right? I mean, that is actually, uh, you know, that is emotionally empowering and healing, right? To yes. be able to say, like, I guess I could afford to take a day off, you know, like I can afford to think about this stuff. It's just like at a time when people are really struggling mm-hmm. to, to talk about the uh, emotional healing you can get from becoming a landlord,
2: Ay, ay, ay.
0: It's wild. It also is part Tone of a se- really a series um, of stories we've seen attempting to humanize the landlord. And I have to see that as kind of deliberate. Like they really are. They really are trying to set uh, landlords. They're people, too. They don't mm-hmm. only ignore the rats in your building. They also fly kites mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, I, I think that that is not a total accident I agree. Is, is how I would describe it.
1: Hey, explain to me what is going on with Tim Hortons in Canada. I know it's been in the news. I haven't really followed it, but I see you've made a notation here.
0: Yes, I want to get into it a little bit more deeply uh, tomorrow with uh, Chris Garafa, among some other topics. But basically, uh, Tim Horton used its mobile app to collect a whole lot of sensitive location data in violation of Canadian privacy laws. And Uh uh, it's proposed a very Tim Horton's settlement with people who discovered that their movements had been recorded even every Uh few minutes and even when the app was closed. Right, so these people had no idea they were being tracked. Uh, Why would they do that? What, what benefit do they get? From they it? can sell the data, and that's the only benefit oh, ever. Is the data is valuable, oh and you gosh. can sell it, or you can market better to people oh, when that's you have so it. Cynical, uh, but to make up for that, Tim Hortons is proposing a donut and a free hot coffee. <gasps> Are you kidding me? Nope. Who knows if people will accept that? As compensation for having been tracked to within an inch of their lives uh, unknowingly by this, you know, supposedly benign coffee and donuts, Canadian, very friendly. Oh, my God. Yeah. But we'll get into the implications (laughs) of this tomorrow with Chris Garofa. And we're also going to talk about Rumble. Rumble. Going up against Google and so far winning. Yeah. could be even more interesting. It's
1: going to be fun. But
0: you're going to have to wait for that. I want to say thanks to all of our guests as usual and, of course, to the engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Whitty, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.